Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Well, welcome to the Strata Leadership Show. Today, we have a dear friend of mine, Jim Priest, who's joining our show. Jim is someone that I think the, the world of, and we have spent a lot of time together hiking in different national parks throughout the country. Jim is the president and CEO at Goodwill Industries of Central Oklahoma. If you look him up on LinkedIn, which I would uh, suggest that you should, Jim is someone who's constantly contributing meaningful things on social media. But uh, Jim is someone that would refer to himself as a people developer, and I couldn't agree more. Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Nathan. Thank you for the invitation. So Jim is somebody who cares deeply about people and ideas. And one of the reasons that I have admired him is because of his ability to connect people. And matter of fact, uh, we've, we really have hiked a lot of miles together. And if you uh, hike very much, you know that people give each other trail names. And the trail name that I gave uh, Jim Priest a, a few years ago is the trail name, The Bridge. And the reason why I gave him that title is because I've never seen someone who has the ability to create a bridge between different groups. He's the kind of person that even if you disagree with him, you'd listen to him because he would listen to you if he disagreed with you. And so I have really enjoyed watching Jim's career. His background is in nonprofit executive leadership and also in law. He has been a columnist for our state's largest newspaper for a number of years and is someone who's always trying to connect people and ideas. So when you look at the idea of being a leader, Jim, who is someone, if you could think about people who've made an impact on you as a leader, who would be someone that you would say that person helps shape who I am today? Yeah, two, two people come immediately to mind one that I know personally and one that I've just watched and read and I had the good fortune to meet once. Uh, the, the person that I knew personally and lived with is my dad. Uh, he was a leader in some arenas of his life. Uh, and then he was kind of a quiet backbench guy in other areas. Uh, but he was uh, involved in the labor movement. He was a union leader. He was a leader in our Boy Scout troop. Uh, and he was a leader in our church, but he wasn't uh, engaged in what I would call community agencies or United Way or anything like that. So he kind of was selective about it, uh, but he shaped me in so many ways. He's undoubtedly the single greatest influence in my life, and I've written a lot about him. And then the person that I don't know personally, although I've met on a couple of occasions, uh, but who shaped me a lot in my attitudes is Zig Ziglar. And uh, Zig, of course, has written prolifically and done a lot of recordings. And I've listened to him speak live on several occasions. And uh, I have a picture of him, like I'm sure most groupies, uh, which is one of my prized possessions. I'm looking very young and slender, and he's looking like Zig. But those two people... And I think it's interesting, you know, one was up close and personal. The other one was more distant, but I listened so much, particularly when I was a young lawyer on the way into the office and the way back. This will date me, but I listened to cassette tapes. 
I also used to have eight track tapes, which is really, really old, but, but Zig stuff I started on cassette tapes. So those are the two that probably have influenced me the greatest. You know, I appreciate both of those examples and uh, I know how much you uh, loved uh, your dad while uh, he was uh, here with us and how much you love him now, even as he's gone. And, and I love hearing about people who have influenced other people and, and they may not have had a, a personal relationship, but they were still connected. And so I, I do appreciate both of those examples. And I, I too remember listening to Zig Ziglar tapes um, and, and he had a way of connecting and inspiring and just making you feel like you could do it. And I, and I do appreciate that mm-hmm. very much. So you grew up in the Northeast. You graduated from Syracuse uh, Law School back in 1980. And right now, this interview, you are sitting in your office at Goodwill Industries. And I'm assuming when you walked across the stage in 1980 and got that law degree, you were not imagining that in some point in the future, you would be leading uh, this huge enterprise of Goodwill Industries. How did you get to where you are now? If, if I were uh, having this version of you talk to the version of you that just walked across the stage, what advice would you give that young lawyer about the future that was ahead? Well, just to briefly sketch, I left, after graduating Syracuse, I left Syracuse, which is my hometown. And because I'd married a Texas girl, she encouraged me to live somewhere where it wasn't winter nine months of the year. And so she wanted to move out west or southwest. So we came to Oklahoma City and I was fortunate to get a job with what at that time was a relatively small law firm, about 10 lawyers. It grew to a law firm of about 75 lawyers. And I stayed, I was there for 25 years and practiced employment law, primarily constitutional law as well, and did a lot of trial work, which is what I thought lawyers did, you know, and probably wanted to become a lawyer because it looked cool on TV. Uh, So I I did a lot of trial work and learned so much there and then went on and practiced law in a couple of different firms after that. But I knew I wanted to have an impact in a bigger way than just helping people through legal problems. So I ran for Oklahoma Attorney General in 2010 and I lost that race. It, it, It was, you know, I'm glad I did it. I wish I had won, but Many of the good things in my life would not have happened had I won. And I ended up getting in the nonprofit arena, first working for a small nonprofit that dealt with substance abuse issues. And then I went to a nonprofit called Sunbeam Family Services that did a variety of different social services. And then I migrated over to, to Goodwill, where I am today. And I think to your second question, what advice would I give uh, the young Jim Priest walking across the stage? I think part, part of what I would tell him is to be relentlessly purposeful. That's a phrase that a friend of mine uses uh, when he talks about God. God is relentlessly purposeful in our lives. And I think we have to be intentional about being purposeful. That sounds a little redundant, but so much of life just comes at us. You know, we think, uh, well, I I guess I need to get married. You know, keep an eye out for a woman that I think will be faithful and true and pretty and kind to me and good to my kids. 
Uh, and then, you know, someday we'll have kids and then I'll progress and maybe I'll become a partner in the law firm. A lot of that just happens because stuff is thrown at us or opportunities rather than us sitting down and saying, you know, this is where I would like my life to end up. I remember talking to a senior partner one time uh, who was a very accomplished trial lawyer. And I, and I asked him, I said, Ken, how, how did you decide to get it into what you're doing? And he paused for a minute. He goes, well, it just sort of happened. And I remember thinking, even at that early stage of my career, I don't want that to be my story. I, I got into this and it just sort of happened. I want to intentionally go somewhere and do something. So I began to apply that principle to different areas of my life, including being a dad, being a husband. So that's the advice I think I would give young Jim Priest is to think about being intentionally purposeful in every area of your life. So I smiled when you when you gave that description because it's one of those classic things a leader would say of um, don't waste your life, know where you want to go, uh, be purposeful and be intentional. And I love what you're saying. Uh, I find it interesting because a lot of leaders think that other people think that way when in the reality is they, they, they really don't. So at what point in your life did you realize that uh, you were a leader that you could help influence how other people thought about themselves uh, and their world. And that was a way that you might be able to serve people. I I had a very bad leadership experience uh, in the sixth grade, but that was probably the first time I thought, I I think I'd like to be a leader. And of course, you can't remember exactly what you were thinking back in the sixth grade, but I think my idea of leadership was bossing people around. And so uh, in the sixth grade, you could be a crossing guard. And the way they organized it, uh, they would have a captain and a lieutenant and then all the crossing guards. And the crossing guards that were just crossing guards, they would be assigned to a post, some intersection to make sure kids got across the street safely on the way to school. And then the captain and the lieutenant were in charge of making sure people were at their posts, filling in if somebody didn't show up and that sort of thing. And so we had the election, all the crossing guards voted for who they wanted to be captain, who they wanted to be a lieutenant. And of course, I wanted to be the captain. And I lost that election. Uh, I, I was voted lieutenant and a lady, a young girl named Linda Waffle was elected captain. And I later found out it was because there were more girls than boys among the crossing guards and all the girls voted for Linda and all the guys voted for me. At the end of that time, and I can't remember how many months it was, and I thought I did a good job, but I remember talking to a friend of mine named Buddy Milberg, and I must have said something that made him mad because he just kind of punched his finger into my chest and he goes, nobody liked you anyway as Lieutenant of the crossing guards because you were always bossing people around. And I was like, wow, I was stunned because I didn't get that sense at all from anybody. But I think he probably was right. I think I probably did boss people around. And I wasn't thinking about, you know, the classic expression now being a servant leader. I was just cool. I had the cool red badge. I was the lieutenant. And even though I wasn't the captain, I was better than the crossing guards. And so I was all about the pecking order. I, I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate yeah. that example. That bad experience helped me recognize it. And, and it was more, you know, Buddy's 
rebuke of me that I needed to hear uh, that really got me thinking. I, I think there's more to this leadership thing than just bossing people around. Uh, so then well, <laughs> uh, I'm assuming, buddy, the sixth grader, seventh grader, whatever he was uh, at the time may have been exaggerating uh, a little bit. But that feeling of having someone say that to you and that cuts so deep is a feeling that all leaders know. And it is one of those very distinct realities of being a leader is that even if you had the right motives or whatever, you put yourself out there to serve other people and you wanted to be a, a good leader. And when you find out that people didn't feel that way about you, it's always hurtful. Mm-hmm. So we fast forward from that moment to running for office. Same idea. I'm willing to put myself out there uh, for whatever reason. I'm willing to allow myself to be voted on in a system that uh, might be fair, might not be, you know, whatever it may be. Why are you willing to put yourself in the line of fire, so to speak, to be open for rejection in, in moments like those? Why, why are you willing to uh, endure that pain? I think it's rooted in, you know, again, going back to my dad. Um, my dad told me one time, this probably was after I had set my sights on going to law school. He said, don't ever forget where you came from. And I grew up in a kind of a middle-class, lower middle-class family, but my dad grew up in a very poor family. My, my grandpa was a coal miner in Pennsylvania, and it was very hand-to-mouth. I knew that I came from people of great need and poverty. And so I, I kind of made it my desire and my goal to try to help vulnerable people because I was in the position where I could do some things. And you always have to be careful. Uh, you don't want to come across with, hey, there's a vulnerable person and I know what they need. And so I'm going to give them $5 or I'm going to you know, meet their needs without really listening well to what their needs are, what they perceive their needs to be. So that, that was my campaign. When I campaigned for attorney general, I felt like it was the obligation and the responsibility of the attorney general for any state, but the state of Oklahoma, to safeguard vulnerable people, not to stick up for big companies, you know, not to go after them unless they've done something wrong, but to be the lawyer for the people, to stand up and speak for those who had no voice. And so that's kind of the, uh, I represented lots of different kinds of people through my law career, but I got the most satisfaction representing people who had no voice for themselves. You know, that's one of the reasons I love and admire you, because I would say that whether you had been an elected uh, official or not, you have pursued that mission faithfully. Uh, And I look at the role that you're in now. uh, That's the uh, role that I'm so happy that you're in. But even this role that you have now is not unique in the sense of these are the types of things that you've been trying to connect with and promote and be a part of um, for as long as I've known you. But looking at Goodwill, I, I was really amazed by the scale of the good work that's being done through Goodwill. Can you tell us a little bit about Goodwill and, and just a description of the, the, the scale of it and, and what you're accomplishing through it? Well, I think everyone's familiar with Goodwill thrift stores. Uh, so the phrase that I've been trying to use more in my talking about what we do is we're more than a store. We're a store and much more. 
And so we do, uh, our, our mission statement is to help people overcome challenges to employment and transform lives through the power of work. So much of our lives are spent at work and we have such a great opportunity in work, particularly those of us that have the opportunity to influence culture. We, we have the opportunity really to transform people's lives. Uh, it's not just giving them a source of income, which is certainly a good part of that and an important part of it. But we derive a lot of self-worth from our work and we have the opportunity to meet people's needs. And so that's what Goodwill does. In our stores here in central Oklahoma, we have about 750 employees. It's about a $32 million budget. And we employ a lot of people in our stores but not only do we employ them, we provide wraparound services to those who need them. So we have a number of people maybe that are coming out of justice system involvement. You know, this we're a second chance employer as somebody that needs kind of to get their foot on that first rung of the ladder to, after they get out of prison. That person has a lot of needs, not just in, for income, certainly income is one, but uh, they may be struggling with family issues or psychological issues, emotional issues, uh, housing issues. And so we, we have begun a program here called Begin at Home, where we provide wraparound services for those that work in our stores. And then we have a, a variety of other programs for folks that are not involved as store employees or Goodwill employees. Uh, we provide uh, services to homeless veterans in fact, this past month, we were able to house uh, 100 homeless vets in 30 days. We just did a, a big blitz and tried to get homeless vets off the street and into temporary housing where we could transition them into permanent housing. Uh, and then we're involved with justice involved uh, people, like I said, helping folks to either do community service that's been mandated by the courts. And then sometimes they want to transition into permanent employment with us. Uh, and we do a lot of job opportunity seeking for folks. Sometimes again, they end up at Goodwill, but sometimes we help them find jobs elsewhere. And we provide job training. And we have something called the Goodwill Career Pathway Institute, where we provide both what we call hard side and soft side skills to people. And some of them need just basic stuff, like how do I interview for a job? How do I fill out an online application and then some of them are the next level up. Uh, what is EQ, uh, emotional intelligence, and why is that important in whatever job I have? So we've got a broad array of services, and it's sometimes hard for me to keep track of all of them. Uh, so I had a graphic artist recently put together a picture, because I think better in pictures. And I said, I, I'm, I'm imagining a big building that Goodwill is housed in, and it has different doors and windows representing the different services that we provide to the community. Uh, so here's what it looks like. And I drew this awful drawing, you know, just kind of hand scratched on a piece of paper and gave it to my graphic artist that is one of our contractors. And she made it into a beautiful picture that I think helps us understand better what we do. You know, it really is amazing, uh, all that you're doing. And, and how many stores are a part of um, uh, the, your network? In central Oklahoma, we have 25 uh, stores and then 18 independent donation centers. 
So all the stores have a donation center attached to them, but some places we have just a standalone donation center where people can come and give us uh, used goods. And uh, we, we prefer that they not be junk. <laughs> Sometimes people give us their junk. And, and if that's mixed in there, then uh, we dispose of it. But we, one of the things we really try to do is to be good stewards and recycle. And so very little stuff goes to waste. We, we put very little of what we get in the trash can. Uh, so we either sell it in the store, or if it doesn't sell there, then it goes to our outlet store where we sell by the pound. And then if it doesn't sell there, then we sell it as bale, bale product. And uh, many times textiles are purchased by people for pennies but they're used uh, to be sent overseas uh, to, to folks who need clothing overseas. Well, it's an amazing system and the reputation of Goodwill is such a, a great reputation. For you as a leader, now you're leading 25 different locations, the 18 standalone donation uh, spots. You've got 750 or so employees, many of whom are transitioning to a new phase of their life. This is a this is a very complex system, and there's so many uh, constituents that are interacting with goodwill at all times. When you, when you think about the the, the challenge of, of leading an organization with that kind of complexity, uh, what what would you say are some of the, um, the 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 bigger challenges that you feel a leader would face if taking something on like that? I think uh, I think you're right in terms of the complexity, but I think you have to simplify or at least make it as simple as possible without oversimplifying. And so for me, the 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 kind of the guiding principle that overarches lots of what I do, but all of what I think and plan is to create what I call an employee first culture. Uh, so it, it's to communicate, uh, contrary to what is often the business mantra, you know, the customer's always right, to follow the Southwest Airlines model of doing business and to say, we're going to put primary consideration on how our decisions impact our employees. And to have an employee-first culture doesn't mean employees get everything they want. You know, we, we don't pay the highest wages in the area. We... Not everybody, hardly anybody has a company car. So it's not, it's not where we coddle people. We have high expectations, but we communicate to them our belief that they can meet those expectations. And then we constantly are looking for ways to create structures and policies and practices that serve our people rather than serve the company. Uh, I'll give just a quick illustration of this. Uh, we've had in the past some principles or some policies in, in place that made life easier here at corporate. It was kind of a uniform policy. We administered it uniformly across all the stores and all the employees. But it really, it, it made it easy to administer. So it was good for us. But it really didn't take into consideration the uniqueness of each location and each person. And so uh, we have a new vice president of retail, uh, Frank Holland, uh, who has this employee first mindset also. And so Frank and I have just been sitting down thinking about what could we do to really make this where we're serving our people? 
rather than they're serving corporate convenience. And it's been amazing just in the, the first 60 or 90 days that Frank's been here, uh, he, he knows where to put his finger on the sore spots and tweak it and change it. And we have people coming up to us that are newly energized and invigorated because we've, we've changed policies, but more importantly, we've communicated the importance of the people. Uh, so now it's like every, everything I look at, every book I read, seems to be shouting that principle to me. I, don't, I have purposely sought out some of these books, but uh, it's kind of like the white Toyota principle. You know, you don't pay attention to white Toyotas until you buy one, and then you see them everywhere. Uh-huh. And so since we've been focused on employee first, now it's coming up in almost every arena. And I believe, like Southwest Airlines has proven, it will not only be good for our employees, but it will be good for our company. I think we'll make more money, mm-hmm. which will then be reinvested into our mission. So it just it will continue to compound interest as we invest in our people. No, I appreciate that so much from the standpoint of um, talking to corporate leaders who who may not look at the world that way. And you try to show them the data that goes behind it of taking care of your people is not just the better way to live. It's also the better way to do business. And I, I love hearing what you're getting at. But I, I would say that... <laughs> Let me, let me give an example. I was having a breakfast with a, a leader recently and their company had had to pull back on some of their benefits uh, due to the downturn of the economy related to COVID-19. And this was a company that had taken great pride in how well they took care of their people, but they found themselves in a spot where they could not do everything that they wanted to do. And this leader was just uh, brokenhearted about it. And it wasn't because of the business model they were brokenhearted about it because that was what they had hoped to be able to do together, that they had dreamed of how incredible would it be if we could provide this for our team members, if we could do these things, if we could be more aggressive in this way. And and I found it fascinating because this was someone who was not doing that begrudgingly. That was the goal. That was the dream. And I uh, appreciate, again, where you're coming from on that, of making it about the, the people so when you think about leadership on the bigger picture of just leaders overall, and you think about the complexity of what's happening in, in culture, the volatility of what's happening in culture right now, what would you say um, would be the biggest challenge that you think leaders are facing today? I think it's relationship uh, and not being purposeful and intentional about making sure that their relationships are first of all established and then secondly, continued to building them. I'm, I'm reading a book, listening to it uh, on audiobook as well, uh, called Eat, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. And he talks about the, the dysfunction in Washington uh, among in Congress and then, of course, with the executive branch. And at the time he wrote it, it was dysfunctional. It's even worse now. And he attributes much of it to the lack of relationship that was the result of Congress, people in Congress not living in Washington, D.C. area, but deciding, and it was sometime in the 90s, people just decided, I'm going to live at home and commute into Washington. We'll have a shortened work week. We'll come in on Tuesday morning. We'll leave Thursday night. And so there's no relationship. So I don't know my 
Republican or Democratic adversarial congressperson. All I know is they're against what I'm for. Mm. And I never go to the ball games with them. I don't sit in the same church pew with them. We don't go to barbecues together. There is no basis for us to have a relationship. And whether you're a member of Congress or you know a leader at a nonprofit or a for-profit corporation, relationship is everything. Mm. It's how we truly impact lives. I can make policies here. I can establish priorities for goodwill. But if I don't have relationships with everybody, my, my senior staff, certainly, probably more in-depth than anyone, but I try to make it a point every week I go out to the stores and the donation centers and I talk to people and I find out what are they worried about and what are they concerned about? What do they think we're doing right? And it's, it's a, a small relationship. It's not deep. I don't see these people frequently, but I'm trying to establish some type of relationship with them so that when you know I do a Friday video every Friday and send it out to everybody, uh, they can say, oh, yeah, I'm, that guy came in and talked to me. I remember him. Hmm. And it, it, I have a little bit more connectivity with the folks that work at Goodwill that way. That's good. It's really good stuff. I, I, you know, on the dual concern model, which shows how conflict uh, can be predicted, you have the five different conflict styles of avoiding, yielding, competing, compromising, or collaborating. And it's interesting that the greater the concern you have for someone else, while also having great concern about your own outcomes, it changes what options are available on the table. So if I don't care about it, I don't care about the other people that I'm negotiating with, let's say, then I'm going to avoid, I'm not gonna engage. If I care a lot about somebody else and I don't care about myself, I'm going to yield most likely. If I care about me and I don't care about you, then I'm gonna compete, which is what uh, we're describing, that uh, almost a narcissistic worldview where it's all about me and you're in my way. And when I think that way, the only way I can win is to compete. I'm, I'm going to have to go head to head with you every time. But if I'm concerned about me and I'm concerned about you at a, even a medium level, I can compromise. But if I'm really concerned about you and I'm really concerned about me, then I can collaborate. And so I love your answer. Now, one of the challenges is that it just takes time. So as a, a leader, um, how do you set aside time to be able to build those relationships? Well, one of the things I do, I have a whiteboard in my office. I love whiteboards. And uh, so I, I try to keep the big rocks in words. You know, what are the things that I need to be doing every week and not let the emergencies of the day eat up my day. So uh, I have on, on my whiteboard visit stores Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm supposed to go out and talk to people in the stores. I don't do that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but that's my reminder to get out there. So at a minimum, what I can do, our corporate offices are adjacent to our warehouse and our outlet store. So if it looks like a busy Monday and I'm not gonna be able to get out to stores, which are more distant, then I'll at least walk through the warehouse and walk through the outlet store. And you find out all kinds of stuff when you just walk around. Uh, I think the, 
the Marines call it uh, eyeball leadership. And you just, uh, you get out there and you get to, you see what's going on and talk to people and ask questions and you get great insights. I, I had, uh, not too long ago, I had a funny experience. I was walking through this area that's between the warehouse and the outlet store. And we have this big piece of machinery called a tipper. And so what it's supposed to do is takes uh, a piece of equipment that has a bunch of donated goods, usually textiles, and it tips them into another container that we can take out into the outlet store. And uh, this gentleman who was working in that area came up to me and he, he knew who I was from the videos and he said, hey, I wanna let you know about something, uh, come, come, on, come with me. And so he just dragged me over to this tipping machine. I didn't know what a tipping machine was. I'd, I'd walked by it before, but I had never paid attention to it. He said, this thing's been broke for about 60 days and we can't seem to get the manufacturer to come in and give us the part and it's slowing us down. We can't get our work done. Something needs to be done about this. And I'm like, you're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you stopped me. So I started stick my nose in, you know, what, what was going on and find out who was that, made some phone calls to the manufacturer, told them, you know, what the urgency of the situation was and it, it got fixed, not as quickly as I wanted it to. I don't know how long it would have taken to get that fixed if that guy hadn't stopped me and told me. So he had to have the chutzpah to, oh, I'm gonna go up and tell the CEO this. Some people would be intimidated to do that. Uh, so it was good on his part that he had the chutzpah to do that. And I'm glad that I, you know, made it my practice to walk through that area. A great example of creating an opportunity for that communication. Uh, wrapping up our time, I so appreciate being able to spend some time with you, but wrapping up our time, uh, a couple questions. One is, what, what, what would you say is your favorite thing about leadership? The, the impact that you can make on other people's lives, what would you say is the, 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 your favorite thing about leadership? I think it's that I can make a difference. I have, I tell people, I try to do some of the things I'm doing now in creating an employee first culture. I tried to do that at some of the law firms I was at, but in the first law firm I was in, I, I was a partner, but I was one of 21 partners. So I had pretty dilute power and I didn't have much leverage and I, I could never quite get enough momentum going on with these ideas to have them take place. But I, I'm able to do that now. And I've got buy-in. And I think that's the, when you go home at the end of the day, you think, I made a difference. You know, I've, I've moved that a little bit forward. Some days you don't move anything forward. Some days you're going backwards. Uh, but to, to hear, I heard a story this morning about a lady who was helped through our Begin at Home program. And uh, she's one of our employees who's a single mom with four kids living in a 900 square foot apartment. She's, she doesn't make a lot of money and she was having some food scarcity issues and, and she was in this apartment that wasn't very safe. And just through the Begin at Home program where we invite employees to raise their hand and say, hey, I need some help in these non-work related areas. So one of our folks was able to go through an inventory of needs to see what she needed. And within three days, we had found her a rental house 
which had a backyard or kids could play in. The rent is going to be paid by another nonprofit that we have a partnership with. Uh, three months of rent's going to be paid. We hooked her up with the food bank. We've got her connected with free counseling. We've, we've made a tremendous difference in this lady's life through the efforts of our employees making available to them this program of Begin at Home. And I'm not responsible for that. I mean, I'm partly because I've, I've told people it's a priority and we're going to fund it and let's get going. Uh, but other people have made it happen. But to go home tonight, I'll think, you know, that lady who has four kids and she's a single mom, her life is better because of some of the things that we're doing here. That's, that's what jazzes me about leadership. Love it. You know, you and I have had a chance to go to a few national parks together uh, for our executive summit series that we have at Strata, where we bring uh, executives together for a few days to really contemplate where they are, where they want to go. It's a, it's a pretty amazing experience, experience, really. But if you had to recommend one national park to, to some, you know, to, to say this is a, a national park that everybody has to see, which, what is one that you would recommend? Probably uh, Grand Tetons. I mean, they're all just so breathtaking in their own respect. But I remember being up there and the majesty and the quietness and uh, the wildlife. So probably, probably that. My son, uh, Spencer, who's now 34 years old, a couple of years ago, he hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. Wow. Nonstop. And uh, he saw so much of the wilderness and uh, it, it was a transformational experience for him. And so I, I spent a little bit of time with him at Yellowstone and that was great. Uh, and just getting out in nature is not only a restful experience, but it ministers to your soul. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, why God created uh, the beauty of nature is to be restorative to us as well. So maybe that's another piece of advice I would have given young Jim Priest. Get out in nature more. <laughs> no, that's great advice. Jim, I am so appreciative of you. I am so grateful that you've chosen to invest your life the way that you are. Uh, you, you could have stayed in law and had a very meaningful life, but you chose to be intentionally purposeful in your uh, path and your path has led you where you are now. And I, I so appreciate your heart for people and your willingness to make life better for others. For those listening in, uh, do check out Jim Priest, connect with him on LinkedIn. And, and then if, if you live in the Oklahoma area, I want you to think about that when you drive by those Goodwill stores and, and think about what you can do to express generosity to your, your neighbors and friends and the, the idea that opening up doors of opportunity includes helping people find work. So I'm thankful for you, Jim. I'm thankful for uh, the impact a leader can make when they choose to be intentional and purposeful. And I'm grateful for all those who are listening in. One of the responsibilities of leaders is to set the pace, to set the tone. And that's a choice that we have to make every day, that we are responsible for setting the pace and the tone within our own lives, within our families, our organizations, to make a difference. And I'm glad that you are listening in to the Strata Leadership Show. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day. 